right, Mark 13. Mark 13. Um, we're picking up this week in verse 14. Um, as you recall, last week we, uh, we started on this passage known as the Olivet Discourse. We looked at some of the distinctions between uh, Matthew and Mark, specifically that uh, Matthew clear, more, more clearly delineates between uh, the things that would happen immediately in the, the time of the disciples and the things that would happen in the end times. Mark isn't quite so clear about that. The only distinction he makes is talking about these things initially, um, the destruction of the temple. And then again, later on, he talks about the sign of all these things to be accomplished. And as we saw last time, really what it is, is that throughout Mark's gospel, Mark has portrayed the disciples as being the blind, you know, partially blind, uh, not being able to see, not being able to understand. Mark, earlier on, we saw a triad where Mark three times would have Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to die, I'm going to go to the cross, and then I'm going to rise on the third day. And they still just didn't seem to understand something spoken as clearly and as plainly as that. Why? Because they are just completely dialed in to the established Jewish mentality that the Messiah would come and set up the kingdom. And indeed, the Messiah had come and he'd offered the kingdom, which uh, means that the start of his ministry, at the very least, was simply uh, reinforcing what they believed was going to happen. What they didn't seem to understand was that because Christ had been rejected by his people, the Jews, he wasn't going to set up the kingdom just for the few who believed, but that the kingdom was for the Jews as a whole and would have to come now at a later time. So when they say to him, hey, uh, Jesus, tell us when these things will be, what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? What they're saying is, well, Jesus, we understand that the temple's about to be destroyed. We understand that you're going to come and set up your kingdom. What's the sign that you're going to do this? How are we going to know that the kingdom is now going to be established? So in the very act of asking the question, they're showing their ignorance. They're showing that by asking the question, that they are equating Jesus' prophecy of the end of the temple with the start of the kingdom. They can't separate those two things. So essentially, they're asking two separate questions. And when Matthew tells his story, he delineates that more clearly, that Jesus is asking two separate questions. Here, Jesus simply answers them and tells them a bit about what's going to happen with the destruction of the temple, and a little bit about what's going to happen in the end times. And I imagine it was all pretty unclear to them at this point, though of course Jesus knew that it would be useful to them later. And uh, we saw him talking about uh, the wars and what have you that's going to happen. We saw the fact that the end times uh, is pretty much one of the key things that triggers the, the time that we call end times, or as we saw in Isaiah this morning, latter days, um, is the nation rising against nation. Just a reminder of that. Remember that nation against nation doesn't mean a nation fighting another nation. It means all of the nations fighting together. And that never happened in the history of the world until World War I. 
and then of course repeated relatively soon afterwards in World War II. And really, most of the things that Jesus is speaking of have started to happen with the, that period of time, the 19, uh, 1900s. So we've been through all that anyway last time, and we're now picking up in verse 14. And we saw last time he kind of went from, from near to far, and then he briefly went back to talk what would happen to them um, and then goes back to his chronology of dealing with end times. And now when we come to verse 14, he's now really getting on a little bit towards the end times. He's coming towards the period that's leading right up to the kingdom, which is what they were asking about. And he says this, But when you see, this is Mark 13 verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now this is an expression that uh, kind of does the rounds in Christian circles, the abomination of desolation. And of course, we, we kind of wonder what the abomination of desolation is, and sometimes we'll be uh, taken off here to Revelation to explain it to us, which I may do to some degree, but what we need to understand is this. Revelation hasn't been written at this point. Jesus says to them, when you see the abomination of desolation, saying it as something that they knew about or that they should know about, in Matthew's account, it more specifically says, in Matthew 24, verse 15, the abomination of desolation that Daniel spoke of. And this is something that is referring back to a previous passage in the book of Daniel. Now, we will turn to Daniel now. I'm going to just turn there now. But it's not quite as simple as that. Not quite as simple as that. Because there was something that was referred to as the abomination of desolation, which they would have understood was an abomination of desolation, but it was historical. It had already occurred. Now, in Daniel chapter 8, and I don't want to get too distracted with Daniel, but in Daniel 8 there is a prophecy concerning a kingdom rising up. And there is... Uh, a little horn that grows and thinks that he's very great and thinks that he's wonderful. And, and uh, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 was historically fulfilled in the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek king who in 167 BC it's a little history lesson for the evening. He comes in and to, to Jerusalem and he sets up what, was, what was come, came to be known as the abomination of desolation. And what he did was this. He came up and he went to the Jewish temple and he set up an altar in the Jewish temple to the Greek god Zeus. He set up a, an altar to worship a false god in the Jewish temple. Now, he didn't just do that isolated. There was all sorts of other insults that went along with it, involving things that were forbidden in the, uh, um, in the temple sanctuary. There was the offering up of a pig 
as a sacrifice, which of course was unclean to the Jews. And you might think, well, hold on a second. He went into the, the Holy of Holies. Why, was he, why were they not struck down dead for this, this abomination that was done? And the answer, as we know, if you've been you know, following my teaching and going through the studies with us, is that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, had left the Holy of Holies because of the sin of Israel. And so the presence of God had initially dwelt in the temple, but the presence of God had now left the temple. And because the presence of God had left the temple, it meant that when Antiochus Epiphanes came in, he could enter the temple without any uh, you know, death or being killed in the presence of God. He was able to set up a, a, an altar to Zeus, and this was the abomination of desolation. So it was a false Idol, a false altar to a false god with false offerings and false sacrifices. And it was the using of the Jewish temple to worship a false god that was referred to as the abomination of desolation. Now Daniel talked about that in Daniel 8. And obviously historically it was seen that that had come to pass. But Daniel goes on in chapter 9 to talk about an abomination of desolation at a later time. In other words, this is the key thing, if you're kind of losing a little bit of this now, it's the key thing to understand. Antiochus Epiphanes, what he did, which of course was future for Daniel, from Daniel's perspective, what he was going to do, was simply a type of something similar that was going to be done later. So Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel prophesied, would do an abomination of desolation. He would set this thing up, and that's what it was referred to, because of Daniel. But in Daniel 9, there is a later one who will come in and do a similar thing. You can read about that in Daniel 9, if you look forwards, and verse 27. In fact, let's read back a bit, because I don't want to presume that people know this stuff, and so we... Uh, we need to uh, maybe backtrack a little. But just bear in mind as I read this, when Daniel wrote this, none of it had happened. Daniel chapter 8, Daniel 7, um, it reads like a history lesson. It's talking about the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, and it's so obviously fulfilled that for centuries, liberal scholars would say, well, Daniel wasn't written as early as the conservative scholars say. Daniel was written much later, because obviously they're writing from the perspective of seeing this already happened. And then, of course, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and they found copies that were much, much older than they previously had, and they discovered that, of course, Daniel had been written earlier. This is prophecy. And then we come to Daniel 9, and we're dealing with things that have not yet happened. Now, to me, that's fascinating, that we're looking at a book of the Bible where all of it was written, and none of it had happened. And now we stand at a point in history where large sections of it have happened, but large sections haven't happened. We can be pretty sure that the rest of it's going to happen. So, Daniel 9, I'm going to read from verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about, uh, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. There's a period of 70 weeks. And the weeks are periods of seven years in context. And so there's 70 periods of seven years. And this is going to bring an end 
to sin, it's going to bring all things to completion. Um, to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations, there's the word, are decreed. Now he's saying that basically there's going to be a period of seven of these weeks, and then there's going to be 62 of the weeks. And it starts with the uh, decree to rebuild Jerusalem. That happened historically in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we won't talk about the details, there's debate over precisely the timing of that and the precisely the end. But basically it lines up pretty well and we end up at the end of six, the 62 weeks, troubled time, and after 62 weeks, the anointed one shall be cut off. Well, who's the anointed one? Anointed one is the literal meaning of the word Messiah. When was the Messiah cut off? And, and, and here's where it gets even more bizarre chronologically, okay? We're studying Mark's Gospel. Daniel wrote this and it was future. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is talking so he's alive and hasn't been cut off, so it's future. Now it's past, and in a couple of verses it's going to be future again. You just see God just says, here's what's going to happen. And we're just at a moment in time, just going through the sequence of these things. Does that make you feel small? just being part of this whole process. And, uh, and so the anointed one's cut off, and the people of the prince who is to come. Now, there's a prince who's going to come. We'll talk about him in a minute. But the people of that prince shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The city of Jerusalem, the sanctuary, the temple. Again, Future at the time of Jesus speaking in Mark 13, but about to become very, very real. And can you see more clearly, I said last week, we come back and talk in a little bit more detail about why Mark presented all of this near stuff and end stuff as one sort of thing. Because he's, he's basing it on Daniel, and Daniel does the same thing. Daniel says, look, this is going to happen. This, he, he's taking them into the book of Daniel, and they're saying, well, when's the temple going to be destroyed? And Daniel says when the temple's going to be destroyed, when the Messiah's cut off. And what's Jesus been trying to tell them for a very long time? That he's about to be cut off. He's going to die. And so, uh, the people of the princes come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who destroyed the city, historically, looking back now, and who destroyed the temple? It was the Romans. So the prince who is to come is of Roman descent. He's a Roman person, so to speak. We'll come back to that in a while. And its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. And he, who is he? He is the prince who is to come. So there's a prince to come, 
He's somehow connected to the Roman people, probably Roman descent. And the prince who is to come is going to sign a, make a covenant, a strong covenant for one week. So in the context of Daniel, the weeks are, say, are seven years. We know that historically and in the context, and again, I don't want to get lost in Daniel, but there's a covenant that is going to be made for seven years. Now you read Daniel and you would look at this and say, okay, so the Messiah is cut off, the temple is destroyed, and now we're going to have the princes to come making a covenant. We've got the next week, right? And that's kind of how the disciples are approaching it. They're saying, hey, what's going, to, you know, what's going to happen? It's going to bring all of this to happen. All of this to pass, rather. Just like Daniel is speaking of it all coming to pass. But the, the 69th week ended at the time of Christ with his death. 70 AD with the destruction of the temple. And it all came to an end. We're still waiting for the 70th and the final week to begin. The prince has not yet come, and he's not signed a covenant. The many seems to be a reference in the context to Israel. And so what we're waiting for, to kick off the timetable. And by the way, this to me is fascinating. You can, you can set your clock. There was a period of time that started. He says, this is how long it will be. And there's a period of time that starts with the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and it ends with the destruction of the temple. And that was fulfilled literally. That period of time happened. I, I've got to be so careful, I'm just going to get distracted into Daniel and we're going to leave Mark way, way behind. But it is pretty astonishing when he says, this amount of time is going to happen between this and this and that's exactly what's happened. So we know that the clock is going to start ticking again for another seven years. And what we are waiting for to get the clock ticking again, the end time clock, is we're waiting for somebody of Roman descent, a prince, a ruler, to sign a covenant with most likely the Jewish people. And he will sign it. And for half of the week, okay, so that's three and a half of the seven years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Now this is where it gets a little interesting. I made reference previously to the fact that we've looked at prophecies concerning what will happen to Israel in the future, and it doesn't seem strange to us because we can look over and we can see Israel, right? But for centuries, people were writing commentaries on books of the Bible that spoke about Israel in the future, and there was no Israel. And there hadn't been for centuries. And yet, when we come to a passage like this, we're in exactly the same situation. Because we look at an Israel that exists, but we look at an Israel that exists, a Jerusalem that exists, but a Jerusalem that exists without a temple. How can the prince who is to come bring an end to sacrifice and offering when there is no temple and there is no sacrifice and offering? That tells us something clearly, that there will be a temple. There will be a temple rebuilt. It's one of the things that we kind of watch and we, we see whenever in the news there's talk about rebuilding the temple. We kind of, oh, I wonder if this is going to happen now. 
Because we know it's going to happen eventually. It's prophesied. You remember for centuries, Christians who said there would be Israel again were told they were crazy. And it happened. There'll be a temple again. So for three and a half years, he makes this covenant with Israel. He makes a covenant with Israel, and as a result of that, the sacrifices, or certainly following that, the sacrifices of the temple are brought to an end, and desolations are decreed. Now, we think of covenants as being kind of mutual agreements. You've got to remember, historically, the concept of a covenant. The concept of a covenant was a powerful entity, basically over a smaller entity, saying, hey you, you fall into line or else you're going to end up sliced up like these animals that we've done in our covenant sacrifice. And I, I, I think sometimes when I read sort of eschatological stuff, the covenant with Israel is portrayed as a peace treaty. And I guess in a sense it is because it brings about peace to a degree. But it's not a peace treaty I don't think that is a peace treaty where the Jews say, yeah, that makes sense to us. Where do we sign? Let's sign up to this. This is, a good, this is a good deal for us. I get the impression that perhaps it's something that's very much forced upon them and isn't something they want. And they are, the Jewish problem, as perceived by the world, is dealt with sacrifices and, and there are uh, going to be desolations, as the previous verse says. And then, in the second half of that verse, this is the part we're coming to, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, let's unpack that. So we're midway through the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70 weeks of the timetable. The seven-year period is what we as Christians, because of the book of Revelation, refer to as the tribulation. And by the way, if you've never heard me say this before, Revelation chapters 1 through 19 contains almost nothing new. It's all in the Old Testament and the Gospels and elsewhere. It's mostly putting things in chronological sequence. So Daniel talks about this seven-year period of time called the, the weeks and the Revelation talks about it as tribulation. So halfway through the tribulation, halfway through that, there is a, a, on the wing of abomination, so he comes in and does these abominations, shall come one who makes desolate. So the one who is like a destroyer, if you like, this great ruler, this king, this prince, he is going to do abominations. And so Antiochus Epiphanes, what he did in 167 BC, was a type of this later one who's going to come, this prince who is to come, this guy of Roman descent, this ruler, the one who, because, again, because of the book of Revelation, we tend to call the Antichrist. So if you want to unpack all of this and summarize it, the tribulation is going to begin with the one who is the Antichrist signing a covenant, probably forced, with Israel. And halfway through that covenant, he will do something along the same lines as Antiochus Epiphanes. There will be the setting up of a false god in the temple. Now, I don't want to get too distracted, but I know that people like to 
kind of have the gaps filled in and have the questions answered. So I'm just going to read to you from uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. It says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, that's the day of the Lord, the tribulation, will not come unless rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Destruction, desolation. Same guy, Antichrist. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. You see, when the Antichrist rules, there's going to be no Islam, no, no Hinduism, because every God he is superior to. Every God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. When Antiochus Epiphanes came into the temple in 167 BC and set up the abomination of desolation, he set up the worship of a false god, the god Zeus, whom he, as a Greek king, worshipped. When the Antichrist comes into the temple midway through the tribulation, and he does an abomination of desolation, he goes a step further. He says, this is the god you're going to worship, me. You think, wow, that's brash, huh? But it's even weirder than that. And again, don't turn there. I will just simply read it to you because I don't want to get too distracted away from Mark. But in Revelation and uh, verse 13, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. It makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Well, gosh, there's so much in that verse. <laughs> it's talking about the rising up of one called the false prophet. It's talking about people worshipping the first beast, which is the Antichrist. And it says it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So in the same way that Jesus died and rose again, so there is a wound that happens to the Antichrist at some point, and he will seemingly rise up. There will be signs from heaven, fire coming down from heaven. And the false prophet will, will be like a, a great pope, if you like, just leading people into worship of the Antichrist. And what's going to happen is he's going to get people to make an image of the beast. Okay? There is going to be a duplicate of the Antichrist made. Now, think about what that could be. Because in the very next verse, we're told, and it was allowed to give breath, spirit, life, to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. In other words, the Antichrist won't just sit in the temple and demand to be worshipped he'll be going out and about and doing stuff but there will be an image of him created by the worshippers by man and the false prophet will allow life to come to this image 
and this image will be able to speak. This image will even be able to bring death to people who refuse to worship the image and, by implication, the Antichrist. How bizarre is that? Very, very strange. And I tell you what, there are people today who talk about the image of the Antichrist being something that perhaps would even come under the, the, the banner of modern-day cloning. And you can certainly see why people might think that. Though, of course, we don't know, and we will have to wait until it happens to find out. But there will be this abomination of desolation that is going to happen. So let's go back to Mark now. Boy, that was a lot of little passages off there, wasn't it? I have to kind of fill in these details. I'm never quite sure how much people know and what they've been taught before. So when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, what he's doing is he's doing two things. Firstly, he's making reference to a historical event they would be aware of, the abomination of desolation of Antiochus Epiphanes. Secondly, he's making clear that when Daniel spoke of abomination of desolation, that the fullness of that was not fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes. Essentially, that was fulfilled in chapter 8, but chapter 9 still has to happen. There is a desolation that has to occur. And the he, where he ought not to be, is interesting because the he seems to refer to the abomination of desolation. When Antiochus Epiphanes came in and set up the abomination of desolation, there's an altar to Zeus and there would have been on that altar, because this is how worship was done, there would have been an image of Zeus. So what Jesus is doing here is he's referring to the image, the altar, as a he which kind of lines up with what we've seen in Revelation 13 about the image of the beast coming to life. And I wonder where the he ought not to be refers more than simply to the he shouldn't be in the temple, to he shouldn't exist at all, because it sounds to me like to be a bit of a monstrosity. Now when that happens, Jesus says, and here he is telling people what to do, for an event that now 2,000 years later still hasn't happened. But it's in writing, and it's here, and we hope and we pray that people who are alive at that time can find Bibles and find this passage and find what to do, because the instructions are very specific. He says, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Flee to the mountains. They're going to flee to the mountains and... Uh, we'll talk perhaps a little bit about those mountains, so we might leave that till next week, actually. Um, let the one who is on the, uh, is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house, nor take anything out, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Now, it's interesting, his instructions here are on the one hand very vague, and on the other hand very specific. In, in the degree to which it's vague, he says, flee to the mountains. Well, what mountains? Where are they to go? I believe there's clues and I believe that... Should we do it this week or next week? Well, we could maybe have a look. I'll reference it this week and then perhaps come back to it next week. 
In Micah chapter 2 and verse 12, it says this. It says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. Okay? Who's God assembling? Jacob, Israel. He's assembling Israel, right? I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. And so he's going to gather them together in a pasture. And the, the translation here is of a specific place, pasture, um, sorry, fold, is a specific translation of a place called Bosra. There is a place called Bosra where God will gather Israel. And Bosra was in the mountains in modern-day Jordan. In fact, the nearest place that we can ascertain to modern-day, uh, to, to Bosra in modern-day times is a place called Petra. Anyone know where Petra is in Jordan? Do you know Petra? If you've watched Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, you've seen Petra. Petra is where St. Catherine's Monastery is, which is that amazing thing that has been carved into the mountains. And it's surrounded by these high, um, I'd say walls, I guess they are walls, but cliff faces. And it becomes a place which is very, very secure and very, very safe and very well hidden. Acts as a fold for sheep, hence it being known as Bosra. And that's going to become relevant because the king, at the end of that passage, is going to pass before them. We think that Bosra might be very significant, and we'll come back to that perhaps next time. So Mark 13, back to Mark 13. They're going to flee to the mountains. Historic, uh, prophetically, I think that's going to probably end up being in Bosra, where they'll go to hide for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. But the specific is this. If you're on the housetop, don't go down to get anything in the house. Can you, can you understand that? Listen, if I was in my house, high up, and I saw a fire, I would almost certainly go and grab a couple of things from the house as I was going. The time seems so minimal, you probably, you know, they say don't grab anything, but you probably would. But what if the fire was really close? What if the house was actually starting to be on fire? You get to the point where you say, i just got to leave now. That's the picture that Jesus paints here. It's one of such urgency that you don't even pick up a coat. You don't even pick up food. You just literally run. If you're in the field, that's it. Go. Leave. You're there. You're working in the field. What's the implication of working in the field? Why would you work in a field? You're growing crops. You're growing stuff that you're going to eat when it harvests later on. You're not getting that harvest. You're gone. Don't even take your coat. Just go. Just go. Just run. Why? Because the abomination of desolation, the worship of the Antichrist, is the period of time where the worst anti-Semitic Holocaust will happen in the history of humanity. We know historically that during the Holocaust in the Second World War, that approximately one-third of all living Jews were killed. One-third. In the Tribulation, that is going to be a lot worse. Again, there's no need to turn there, otherwise we'll be here all night. I'm just going to read to you. 
Zechariah chapter 13 says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. God is going to turn his hand against the sheep. That's Israel in context. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third will be left alive. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. And they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord, Yahweh, is my God. God is going to turn his hand against the Jewish people. Two-thirds will die and one-third will survive but they will be purified. The tribulation will see the destruction and the death of twice as many percentage-wise Jews as in the Holocaust. Two-thirds of all living Jews will die. But God will allow it to happen because he will purify the remaining third so that they worship him. So when the Jews who survive go to Bosra, they go to the mountains, Micah 2 refers to them as the remnant. The ones who go there will ultimately be the remnant because they will be purified and they will believe and they are the ones who will cry out for Christ to return. Jesus is putting all these little pieces of the puzzle together. He says also, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Why is that? Well, if you're rushing out of the house, it'd be a little bit easier to run if you're not pregnant. Be easier to go. Hey, you're not going to pick up your coat, but you're surely taking your baby with you. It's going to be a lot harder if you're nursing a child. It's going to be a lot harder if you're going to... Why? Because you're going to be slowed down. And everything about this passage is painting the urgency. The, the Antichrist is now going to do full-scale destruction of Jewish people. And at this point in history, they have just got to get out of there as quickly as they can. They have got to get to the mountains where they can be hidden and protected, otherwise they're dead. They're not going to survive. There will come a point in history where every living Jew is holed up in the mountains. And as they're hidden there, every Jew that isn't there will be killed. And I don't because we're not teaching through eschatology, I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler here, but the Antichrist will pursue them and he will go to the mountains to kill them. And just like the Jews were trapped in front of the Red Sea when the Egyptian army pursued them and they cried out to God and God rescued them. So, in the mountains, the third of remaining Jews when the Antichrist armies surround them, will mourn for Christ, whom they pierced. They will mourn and weep over what their ancestors did. And they will cry for him, Christ the Lord, to return. And he will return. And he'll destroy the Antichrist and his armies with the breath of his mouth. Isaiah prophesies, 
Who is this who comes from Bosra with blood on his garment, like one who is treaded in the winepress? Christ destroying the enemies at the last moment. So they're going to flee and they're going to run. Those who get left behind, get left behind. Those who get to the mountains, survive. And pray it may not happen in winter. That's interesting. Why? Because it's super cold? Not so much that. It's because they have in winter the rainy season. Apparently we're supposed to have a rainy season. I think it happened for two days. But Israel's a bit like that. It's very, very dry. And then there's a period which is a rainy season where they get their rain for the year. Uh, very similar to us in the, here in that regard. And their raining season is typically from uh, December through to February. And what happens is, um, I don't know if any of you saw it, but we, I, I on uh, Monday this week, I was about to go and do a, my, a run on Monday morning. I was about to go and run hill reps, where you go up a hill and recover back down, up a hill and recover back down. And I was about to run up Country Club Lane, which is the top of Olive. If you keep going up Olive, it becomes Country Club Lane. And I was about to go up there to run up there, and I ran up another hill, and I could see there was, there was some mud and stuff that had come down on some of the hills. Ah, probably I shouldn't go up there. It's just because it's dirty, you know, it's just mucky. And as I ran past the bottom of it to go on somewhere else, um, there was a police car there. And the same morning, I'm not sure if it's just before I ran past or just after, the same morning I saw a video later on Twitter where there was literally a river of mud just suddenly out of nowhere flowing down Country Club, carrying a car down with it. You see, what happens is we've had this dry, dry weather, no rain for months and months and months. We've had the fires as well. And then what happens is the rain come down. There's none of the brush there to protect the mud. And it all comes off into the form of mud. And all of these dry areas can't contain the water. That's what happens in Israel in the winter. You go to Israel from, say, March through to November, and there's these riverbeds called wadis. And these riverbeds are places where hikers go and hike. They just look like trails with sort of little walls to the side. They're bone dry and you can walk down them. We have, we've got little uh, river beds like that all up in the mountains and stuff. You know, you can go there. But if it suddenly starts raining hard and there hasn't been rain, that suddenly becomes very, very dangerous. And they will routinely, over the years, have had hikers in Israel drown because of flash floods in these wadis. Jesus is saying, you be praying that when this day comes, it's not winter. Why? Because you might have to have these little hidden paths and escape routes to be able to get your way to the mountains. People are going to be looking for you and looking to kill you. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. That's why we call it tribulation, folks. It's the worst. Of all the periods of suffering and trials and tribulation, this is the worst in history. Nothing up to this point. Not World War I, not World War II. No local atrocities, genocides, holocausts, none of it. None of it is comparable to the tribulation that is to come. And it will be the worst 
and it will never be anything worse again. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. In other words, the extent of the suffering, the extent of the death, the extent of the persecution is so great that if God had allowed it to go on any longer than the seven years, no one would have survived. There's all sorts of suffering. There's war, there's famine, there's disease. And there are people dying from bizarre supernatural events in the heavens, demons, all sorts of stuff. And it'll be the worst period of history. So, um, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. I, I think people constantly misunderstand this. Whenever you see the word elect, Christians like to, because we're kind of proud and selfish, we like to think of ourselves. <laughs> because we Christians are elect. Ephesians 1.4. God chose us, elected us, before the foundation of the world. We're elect, right? Right, we're elect. But angels are elect as well, you know. 1 Timothy 5 talks about the elect angels. And there was also a nation that was elect and chosen, the nation of Israel. And the context of Mark 13, as we've clearly seen, is the context of Israel. They're the ones that are going to be judged. They're the ones that are going to be persecuted. They're the ones whose temple is, is, has an abomination of desolation. And they're the ones who have to flee. And it is therefore God's covenants with Israel that means that he keeps the tribulation the length that it is and no longer. Otherwise, his promise to them wouldn't be able to be fulfilled because they'd all be dead. And then it says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, here's the Christ, or look, here he is, do not believe it. And so there will be those who will claim to be the Messiah and Saviour for the world in the midst of this difficult time. Not to believe them. But of course there will be one false Messiah above all. We've already read about that in 2 Thessalonians. That the Antichrist will have enough world power in, uh, at the beginning of a tribulation to start the tribulation, start that timetable, that seven years ticking, by signing this covenant with Israel. But three and a half years in, he declares himself to be God. He becomes the last great false messiah. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Okay, now let's unpack this. There's a couple of little things here. But firstly, note this. So there's false messiahs and there's false prophets. And these lead ultimately to the false messiah, the Antichrist. Anti-Christ, messiah, anti-messiah. He's the, the ultimate false messiah. And the false prophet. And we've already seen that they will do signs. Revelation 13 talks about fire from heaven. And Revelation 13 spoke about life being given to the image of the beast. 
And though Jesus, that hasn't yet been written, Jesus isn't speaking uh, in those terms, he's speaking of those kind of things. But notice here the plural, that even before the Antichrist and false prophets become the final example of this, there will be other false Christs, other false prophets, who will do signs and wonders. Listen, the false prophet is going to take an image of a man and make it come alive. There's going to be miracles going on. There's going to be fire coming down from heaven. If somebody, if you had a child that was dying of cancer and nothing, no one and nothing could heal it and they were about to die and someone comes along and says, I'm a prophet of God and I can heal your child. And you say, go on then. And they do and your child gets well. They said, now listen to me, I'm from God. You're going to listen, right? Jesus is saying, don't do that anymore. In this day and in this time, don't do it. Because there's going to be false prophets and they will have signs and wonders. This is why the rise of the charismatic era in recent years is such a dangerous thing. There are millions and millions and millions and millions of Christians, genuine, saved Christians, who if you can do a miracle for them, will believe that you're from God and give you greater authority of the Bible, or more accurately give you authority to interpret the Bible however you want, no matter whether it's the right way to interpret or not. In light of passages like this, that's very dangerous. Because there are going to be signs done. There are going to be miracles done. And the purpose of miracles is the very act of leading people astray. And lead astray, if possible, the elect. Well, we know who the elect is. We've already seen this in context. The elect is the Jews. So in other words, why does it say if possible? Like as if that's such a bizarre thing that the Jews would be, would be uh, distracted here. Well, how strange would it be for a Jew to believe the Antichrist is God when the Antichrist believes that all the Jews should be killed? That would be a strange thing, would it not? Hey, I, I'm, the, I'm, the, I'm the Messiah. Here, I'm the Messiah, and I decree that all Jews should be killed. And if you're a Jew, are you going to worship this, this false Messiah? Ah, uh, I guess not. But what happens if before he says that, he does some sign from heaven and says, I am from God, and they go, wow, you must be from God. I believe that you're the Messiah. And then he says, and now we're going to kill all the Jews. How bizarre, huh? But what Jesus is saying in that apparent paradox is something very clear. He's saying the signs and wonders are going to be so convincing that somebody might believe that they came from God even if the people doing these wonders want to kill you. I wonder if there will ever be in those days a Jew who becomes a willing human sacrifice because he believes the one who's killing him is his Messiah. How bizarre. And Jesus ends and says, 
but be on guard. I have told you all things, that's the phrase that Mark used at the beginning, giving us bookends to this section, talking, he said, what, they said, what about these things? Destruction of a temple, immediate. And all these things, which Jesus then answers by telling them about the whole of the, the goings-on that's going to happen before the coming of the kingdom, because that's really what they're asking. And Jesus, in that context, is saying, I've told you all these things that are going to happen before the kingdom, so that you be on guard. And for that generation of Israel, when that time comes, Mark's Gospel, Matthew's Gospel, they stand here, and Luke's Gospel, they stand here with texts and instructions that are given. And I hope and I pray that the Jews in that day have hold of this stuff. New Testament, not Old Testament, not their Bible, they need to have this so that they flee. They need to get out of there. They need to leave. The instructions have been given. Then in verse 24, we have something very different. In those days after that tribulation. So next week, we're going to come back to verse 24. We're going to see what happens after the tribulation after the seven years and it's going to end verse 26 with the coming of the son of man in the clouds so those of you who are familiar with that expression you will know that we're going to go back to the book of daniel again next week let's pray father we thank you for your word and we thank you uh, for these fascinating scary and bizarre passages of scripture but behind it all, Lord, is the promises that you kept to your people Israel, that you would sanctify them and give them a new covenant, that they would be saved, their spirit, your spirit would be in them. Your promises to establish a kingdom on earth and your promise that your son would return. Father, may these things, Lord, not distract us from your son, but may they point us to your son. May we long for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.